welcome to Mind the Skills Gap, where we explore the barriers to skills transfer and how you can overcome them, flavoured with a sprinkle of neuroscience. In this episode, I speak to Emma Weber, CEO and founder of Lever Transfer of Learning, to discuss why learning transfer shouldn't send a shiver down your spine and how she's used AI to help her clients move from knowing to doing. I'm Stella Collins, an evangelist for the neuroscience of learning and co-founder and chief learning officer at Stella Labs. Watch out Skills Gap, we're coming for you. Hello and welcome back to the Stella Labs podcast. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be picking up with a person who I consider to be a friend. Emma Weber, CEO and founder of Lever Transfer of Learning. It says it on the tin, Lever is special, a specialist in uh, transferring learning into the workplace. And I'm going to let Emma explain all about that as we have this conversation. So Emma, welcome to the Stella Labs podcast. Thank you, Stella. Just delighted to be here today and sharing with you and your listeners my passion for all things learning transfer. Fantastic. So uh, we're going to kind of gallop through this conversation and it'll go where it goes. But, you know, clearly we're going to talk about transfer of learning because I think we're both very fascinated by that. We all totally, I would say, almost obsessed by it. Um, And for me, it's an incredibly important um, element of what we do at Stella Labs. So I think we have uh, a really strong connection there. One of the questions I want to ask you first off, just for a kind of more of a fun way of starting, is a question I asked, I think it was probably the first podcast I ever recorded, and I asked Herr Driesen who he'd invite to a learning dinner party, and I'd love to know who you'd invite. Am I allowed more than one guest at my learning dinner party? absolutely, yes. I think Herr ended up with about eight. (laughs) Okay, well, I have a short list. (laughs) So I was thinking, um, I really, really enjoy Mike Taylor's newsletter. Every week, it's one of the ones I always click on. I always get value from it. So I would love to sit down and have Mike to my learning dinner party. Um, Brene Brown is a podcast. I'm loving her work. I've been loving her work since Ted. And I would love to have her at a learning dinner party because she started her life in learning and then went on to her research career. So I think it would be fascinating to have Brene Brown. She's somebody and, I don't actually know, so I'm going to I'm going to follow up on her. Well, you must look Brene up. You will you will love her work, I'm sure. And um, last time I heard Josh Burson speak when he was in Sydney, um, he reduced me to tears, and um, I felt I feel there's a conversation to be had there. So Josh is talking a lot of the moment about action plans, which is very key to me in in my work around learning transfer. Um, but he, he sort of followed it up saying, when someone creates an action plan, it gives them a really good value and don't worry what happens to the action plan after it's created, at which point I nearly fell off my chair. Now, I challenged Joss on it and he said he was, you know, not to be taken literally. And um, he referred to it later on in the conference. But I would love to pick his brains more about what's happening with action plans at the moment. So I would have Josh, Brene and Mike Taylor would be my three. That sounds like a fascinating dinner party, but I do need to know, tears of laughter or tears of, of despair? I, I, was, I was in despair. If someone says to me, let's not worry what happens to these action plans after they've been written, I am just tearing my hair out. Well, what has the world come to when someone is saying that? But 
I equally know what it's like to be up on stage just on a roll, saying things, having a joke. And, you know, I I don't think Josh was being literal, but um, I'm quite a literal person. And I heard it. I thought, what? So, <laughs> yes. Well, I really love the idea of, of your dinner party. I think you've got a, a really uh, great line of guests. I like you, I, I love listening and reading to, to Mike Taylor stuff and Josh Burson, who I kind of came across relatively recently and I'm now kind of reading everything he writes. So uh, I think uh, your dinner party is going to be great. Thank you, Emma. So as we've kind of started talking about uh, action plans and, and transfer, I, I really see you as, as the queen of transfer of learning into, into work. So where did your passion start and what's kind of really, really important for you? I think my passion started um, around getting really interested in behavioural change, motivations for people, um, why we do what we do. So a real sort of passion for people, passion for growth, passion for learning and development. And then when I was working in the, you know, the corporate world in London, you go on this training programme, you love it, and yet we don't always apply what we've learnt. And perhaps maybe even we rarely apply what we've learnt. And for me, there just was a real fit between how do we create behavioural change for people, especially when we've been inspired and motivated in the first place through learning. And so it was just from personal experience, knowing that that's difficult when you come back from a training programme. Um, and through the work I started doing with, with clients. Um, so it was in um, BMW Australia who first really took the concept of learning transfer that I was talking about and, and started to run with it. And then as we saw what it, the difference that it actually made, um, we quickly switched our business from doing three different, you know, forms of behaviour change just to that one. Fantastic. And, and so you made the switch from London to Australia. There's perhaps a, another interesting thing, just if, if you don't mind sharing why why that happened so I moved 18 years ago I always wanted to start my own business in London so I moved when I was 30 that's giving the game away isn't it um <laughs> but I really moved here because I thought if I stayed in London I'd try and start my own business but people knew me and I thought someone will offer me a nice job a good salary and a flash car and I wouldn't be able to resist so I thought if I go to Australia where I know no one no one will offer me a job and I'll just have to make the business thing work. And that was really my rationale between for moving to the other side of the world to start a business. That is fascinating. I really didn't know that about you, Emma. That's a really amazing, brave and probably very wise thing to do. I think That's I had been here six weeks, though, Stella, before I was offered my first job. And I thought, well, clearly my plan was unfounded. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still very good friends with the person that offered me that first job and I told that I had to turn them down because I said I can't give up after six weeks um so yes 18 years later I still have my own business and I think there is something about the the southern hemisphere I mean I lived in New Zealand for about four years and people there seemed much more supportive of you starting a business and I think there's also something around the fact you're a you know, a stranger in a strange world, they kind of, I don't know, I don't know whether they're, you're a curiosity, so you stand out more, or people think you're braver than you perhaps really are, or perhaps you really are brave. I don't know, I find it, I find it curious that people seem to think when you travel somewhere that perhaps you're mm. more capable of doing these things. Yeah, and, and I've had huge support locally 
here just from networks and friends and and yeah very very supportive country to be building a business in fantastic okay so let's keep talking about about learning transfer because that really is your your big thing so why is this important for organizations i mean right now um i think covid has caused a massive increase in people taking time off work maybe they're learning but I'm not sure they are learning. I think there's a lot of people who are looking at content. I, I've had a lot of response to my LinkedIn learning program, which you know really is content. Uh, however hard I tried to turn it into a learning program, it's a video uh, with some questions. I've had lots of people telling me they've been watching videos. I've had people saying they've been reading, they've been doing e-learning. But I think a lot of it has been content-based. And I'm curious as to how much they're going to apply what they're learning in the workplace. So perhaps in the context of that, you could tell us a bit more. Yeah. And I think partly it's around how do we educate ourselves as to what is the value of learning and what is learning. And so there's something about educating the learners, because I think a lot of the time people think they've learned something when they have watched a video or when they've read a book. And you may intellectually know it. You may even be able to recite it. You may be able to even ask a question about it answer a question about it. But if you don't actually put that into place, it's going to be a very little value to you. And You're so it's thinking on the same hymn sheet as me, Emma, because I think, you know, this idea of getting the learners to, to really understand what learning is, and that it's, it's perhaps a harder process than they think. It takes time, it takes effort. Uh, and, and when you get it, it's, it's fantastic. But it's not just reading or listening. That might inspire you, it's true might inspire you to go more in depth but it just needs so much more yeah and so I think it's both educating the learners and the organizations as to the stages of learning and what um, you know learning transfer is a phrase about applying the learning back in the workplace or in your day-to-day -day role um, but really to you know to some extent you could say well all of it is learning uh, whether we talk about the application of learning, the embedding of learning, the retention of learning, it's all in the semantics. It's actually, well, what are we doing with that learning? What's the outcome? And, and for me, there does in many places need to be a mindset shift, thinking about what's the outcome that we're creating through this learning. And, you know, it stems right back to the very beginning of what's the outcome we're trying to create and that comes down to, you know, what can people do when they get back to work and how yeah. can they continue to build on that learning, I think is also yeah. important. I was talking to a client recently who um, they want to train the trainer program and the people I'm working with are absolute experts in their field. And I think they currently believe that after the train the trainer program, everybody else is going to have the same expertise as them. And everybody needs to learn that expertise, at the, you know, in a, in a four day, well, it's, it's probably a six month program, but you know, in a four day kind of interactive element. And mm -hmm. they're not, they're not going to come back as experts at all. They're going to have some knowledge, they're going to have some skills practice, but they're not going to be experts. They're not going to be able to actually do until they go back to work. And Stella, it's not even a case of what people can do, it's what do they do. So, you know, you can get to the point where you can demonstrate it and you can be, you know, a very good, effective listener or whatever it is you're trying to achieve, but it's in the heat of the moment when it really matters, do you do it? Not can you do it or can you demonstrate it? Excuse this interruption. At Stella Labs, we help you build business critical skills, not just knowledge. Add the missing pieces to your learning journeys to take people from knowing to doing.
Want to know more? Visit stellalabs.eu to learn more. Now, back to the episode. So can you give us some ideas, some insights into what you do at, at Lever Transfer of Learning? <laughs> Lever sure. Transfer of Learning. To friends, we can be Lever, Stella. So this is all good. Um, so for us, we've created a methodology, which is um, the methodology is called Turning Learning into Action. But I really feel whatever type of methodology you're using, at the heart of it needs to be reflection and accountability. So we need to get people slowing down, reflecting, but specifically reflecting on the actions and behaviours that they intend to put into place. And then we evaluate and work out what's been successful within that. So I think a lot of the time when we think about reflection in learning, we think about reflection to actually create that insight or that aha moment. But if we can make this reflection specifically about an action plan or the actions that we intended to put into place, then you have a much more powerful reflection piece because you're actually driving reflection and accountability at the same time. So that's what we are aiming to do with turning learning into action. Um, as I say, I've been working, you know, the business is 18, year, 18 years old, specifically in this space of learning transfer for 15. And we very much worked for the first 15 years solely on a human, um, human, my team, my fabulous team around the world, 12 different, 16 countries, 12 languages, delivering over the phone and actually having turning learning into action conversations with people. Very short, sharp, focused, deep conversations about behaviours, you know, our thoughts, feelings, values, beliefs, fears and needs control our behaviours. So we need to be having a conversation at that level, not just about the behaviour. You've got to get people underneath the iceberg to work out why they're doing what they're doing or why they're not. And I was, um, I always say to my team, remember, it's not about the participant talking to you. It's about you helping the participant have a conversation with themselves. And one of my team said to me, well, Emma, if that really is true, why can't we do it with artificial intelligence? And this was probably about five years ago now we were having this conversation. And I, of course, said, no, never, would be never clever enough. We could never do that, not in my lifetime. And then you know when as a leader you've gone into that defensiveness space and you realise you're just justifying and, and proving. And I thought, hang on, you know, hold your horses. Um just consider whether it could be possible. And that sort of started it on this journey of creating, putting our methodology into an AI and now having Coach M, which is our artificial intelligence, narrow artificial intelligence coach, where people can have a learning transfer conversation using our methodology with Coach M. And sometimes they have conversations with the human team and Coach M, or sometimes for some projects they're just talking with Coach M. But that's essentially what we're playing with, Stella. <laughs> and I know you've had amazing success with Coach M. I think I've seen some um, some case studies you've had where you've found that people almost engage with it perhaps more than a coach. So a, real, a human coach. Human coach, yeah. So I was, you know, I was in denial at the very thought that it could even be possible with AI. And then I was, I think I went through a fairly sceptical stage, but willing to experiment just because I didn't want to be defensive. And then I thought, wow, this really works. And then we kind of got really excited because of the level of conversation that people will have. 
And I think we can learn a lot of what's happening in this, uh, the medical space with artificial intelligence and, and chatbots. Um, so, for example, in the US, um, American veterans who are suffering from PSTD or PTSD, sorry, a bit <laughs> dyslexic on those, um, those initials, um, get better results working with the Defence Forces LE rather than a um, psychologist, especially in the in, a therapist, especially in the initial conversations. The reason being the psychological safety is so high because technology can't judge you. So you have no fear of being judged, so you can be more open. And I think we're starting to see trends like that in coaching chatbots. That's a really interesting idea, isn't it? That <clears throat> despite the fact, you know, you can feel, you know, coaches work really hard, don't they, to, to create psychological safety. But I guess there is always that human element of, but they might think this is weird, strange, bad, good, whatever yeah. it might be. Even that kind of, you know, wanting them to think I'm, I've been a good girl. And I guess, yeah, the, the chatbot can't do that. So... That's really interesting. And how have your clients reacted to the idea of having a chat to perhaps human coaches? So I think the I think the kind of the case studies and the experiences that we've been having um, and the results that we can demonstrate has really opened people's eyes to what's possible. And I was doing a demo the other day and um, the client sort of said, they said, oh, I just came to the meeting because I'm, you know, a colleague had invited them to this meeting about this chatbot demo and they got halfway through the demo and they really got into it. And then they just said at the end of the meeting, I got really engaged. I kind of got just hooked into this conversation of not knowing where it was going, but with chatting with the technology, even though initially coming into the conversation, they hadn't expected to be enthusiastic about it. So I think a lot of the time it's only when you actually get it in your hands and really experience what it's like to have a conversation in that way that you can really then start to understand how people engage and create this safety and create this depth of reflection and importantly, slow down to have these conversations. I think one of the challenges still are not just in learning, but in all across businesses is that we are just so busy. We don't give ourselves times to think. And this is a tool that really just slows you down in your thinking and through answering the questions, by default of answering the questions, you are thinking things through. I have, a, I have a question you may or may not have the answer to this but you know many of us are addicted to our, our smartphones we find them you know just in themselves they're engaging do you think that's part of it oh that's a that's a tough question and I actually at the very early stages of this I had a bit of a moral dilemma because I was at a conference and someone was talking about you know we need to get off our smartphones which you know I am fully supportive of that you know we need to get off our smartphones yet here I am suggesting a technology that uses your smartphone um, but I think it's kind of, do we use it for good or do we use it for evil? That's, that's kind of where I ended up with it. And I think we just have to, um, you know, I am the world's worst with my smartphone. I think we have to accept that it's, it is going to be with us constantly. And actually, if we can use it for things that are actually helpful to us, then that's a, that's a positive. And in yeah. fact, I was um, working with someone today and they said they felt because it was conversational and questions, it was more powerful than if they had been answering those questions that had been written down because they felt they were talking it through with someone, even if though the person, you know, they knew, I knew the person wasn't real in a, in a proper person kind of way because we do feel quite affectionately towards Coach M. Um, 
that they felt more compelled to answer the question in more detail than if they'd just, and they said, in fact, if they'd had the last four questions just on a piece of paper, they would have skipped them. But they answered all of them with Coach M. So it was quite fascinating. I guess evolutionarily, we have, you know, we, we learned to speak and listen long before we ever learned to, to write. So I guess, you know, in some ways, that's taking us back before the, the rugby had conversations. So Stella, I think that's really interesting when you think about, and, and you were just talking about speaking to the chatbot, I need to create a quick clarification that in most cases when people are speaking with Coach M, I say speaking, but they're actually doing an, an SMS text message or messaging through a platform like Microsoft Teams or Slack. So it's actually, it's a it's a text message, you know, where you where you write it. But funnily enough, we were deploying in France and it was the first time we deployed in a second language. And I had some feedback from the client that one of their team members had used Coach M via Siri. So they were getting Siri to read the text messages and they were replying verbally via Siri to Coach M and it worked a treat. So it hasn't been designed for that. <laughs> but there's an augmentation of technology, if ever there was one, putting a, a Siri onto a chatbot. That's really interesting. Okay, so so the, so my my theory is is poo pooed immediately. Um, we actually just really love chat, and that's interesting because uh, I was interviewing a young man called Michael Yoffe. I think that's how you say his surname, and he runs an entire business based on learning through text messages. He's working in kind of um, difficult situations, sometimes war zones and things like that, where he's helping people learn. And the only thing they have is a mobile phone and they, you know, they don't always even have smartphones. They can just do sort of text messaging. And he's using text messaging and find it incredibly powerful. Yeah. And, and I think it's that people like to chat about themselves and they like to chat about things that are important to them. And so the, the more that what you're actually doing is relevant and because, you know, in our learning transfer piece, People are leveraging off those action plans that we've talked about that are the things that they choose are going to be most important to them to help them get better at results, get better outcomes in their business. They're already engaged because it's what they actually want to be working on and what they think is going to, to add value for them. So, so that motivation thing is important, right? Well, that's, that's always vital for learning, isn't it? Right at the start, how do you get people motivated? And this is actually helping them because they're feeling it's very much about themselves. Yeah. and their, their actions. And I know, Stella, that you're really into the neuroscience, into, beyond into, expert yourself, we'll call you neuroscience queen, um, <laughs> as we look today. Um, and it's, it's that piece about when people find meaning and purpose, and you can probably talk much more to this than I can, but that um, the dop dopamine and the serotonin hit that people get when they're really connecting in with what's important to them um, can really kind of help put themselves and their brain in that space for learning and reflection. Yeah, yeah. And that whole thing about, you know, it, it's about me. Unfortunately, we are, as humans, we are incredibly selfish. However much we say we want to, you know, save the world. Actually, that's we want to save the world because it makes us feel better, personally, yeah. very often. Yeah. So just to go back to the... Um, perhaps the, the organisational side of it, uh, because we've talked about, you know, finding personal motivation and people finding it personally very um, good. But what's that like for the organisation? How does it relate to the organisation? How do they react to this? 
So one of the interesting things is that the data that you can create using something like a chatbot or a conversational intelligence tool is data that is is very hard to come by in many cases. Now, obviously, we have data privacy, we have confidentiality rules, we have you know the, the protection of data, and different clients like to use different parts of the data of the chatbot experience. But the interesting thing that the data will really drive insights into how people can use the learning, the outcomes that are coming from learning, what we need to do to improve our learning interventions. So you've actually got a whole heap of visibility that you wouldn't usually have. So not only are you driving behavioral change to drive outcomes, and you know we have goal uplift and we can we can kind of map the behavioral changes that happens, but you can also have um, advanced data analytics that are taking parts parts of a conversation that really maybe give you insights. So if we're, we're asking people, um, you know, who are you going to use to support you with this goal? Well, are people being supported by their managers? Are they being supported by peers? Are they choosing to do it on their own? The amount of information that can actually be gathered in anonymous and an aggregated way can be quite huge for organisations. So I think they're partly driven by the impact and the behavioural change, but also partly driven by the insights that the data can give them. And that was quite a revolution, a revelation to me, Stella. Um, and in fact, it was Trish Yule out of Chicago that kind of woke me up to that um, when I when I was working with Trish and showing her what um, we were doing with Coach M. She was so excited for the data potential. And of course, I'm just completely driven by impact and behavioural change. So um, it was great to partner with Trish on the data analytics part of CoachM. Fantastic. Um, and, and we have interviewed uh, Trish and she, uh, you know, she's an amazing expert in, in terms of understanding the data, but making it kind of interesting for people who perhaps are less inclined to be, mm -hmm. making it interesting and accessible to people who may not have an immediate reaction um, that is positive to data. That has, has risen, uh, driven another question for me, Emma. Because lots and lots of people talk about, um, you know, managers being the, the key support. But from that data you've got, is, is that the case? Is it managers who are the people people turn to or are they turning to other sources? That's an interesting question, Stella. And I don't know definitively whether I would have enough data to be able to kind of say say with that piece at the moment. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a mix, actually. It's not that people are naturally checked. Not that we're seeing that people are naturally turning to their to their manager for support on these things, um, but I would perhaps say there's more in-depth analysis to be done around that. I think, interestingly, there's ways that we can actually loop the manager kind of into the conversation, but one of the really big drivers that I find is that when we get an individual holding themselves accountable to themselves, it's far more influential than if they're held accountable kind of to their manager or by their manager. So it's the leaders that really have the ability to help people with this kind of self, uh, the, the accountability for themselves that are even more powerful. And I, and I think when we look at um, self-regulated learning and the sort of um, educational psychology coming through that, we can start to see how people really need to internalise learning for themselves yeah. to be able to move forward with it. So 
I've always sort of said that that, that strategy of thinking the, le- the manager is the key to learning transfer, I think that's more of a hope than a realisation. And, and organisations that often rely on that strategy, I don't see them getting great, great results in most cases. I've, I've for many years been concerned about that strategy because, you know, it's been a kind of a, a quoted thing for, for ever since I got into L&D 20 years ago. You know, managers are the people who make the biggest difference. And that hasn't changed. So either, you know, either it's not actually true or managers just aren't necessarily either able to do it, competent to do it, willing to do it. I don't know. It's probably a million different reasons why managers may not always be doing that kind of support they're supposed to. And I completely agree with you, Emma, that, you know, getting learners to be self-motivated, to have intrinsic motivation to, to want to learn and to transfer that learning into action at work is, is just a vital a vital area that we, you know, I think more people should be shouting about. Yeah, and and all good to get the managers involved and have manager support, which is fantastic. But I think it's we need to work on both sides, both sides of it. I agree. I, I quite often talk about having um, a, a sort of a learner revolution. I want learners to be um, standing up and kind of saying, you know, this learning isn't working for me, or this method of learning isn't working for me. If they are well informed, they can then say, look, I know it's going to work much better if I have a coaching call or if I just have a, a, you know, some people, they like to put things into practice before they do the theory. Mm -hmm. Some people like to do the theory, then they like to put it into practice. But getting people to understand their own approach to learning with uh, a good theoretical understanding of learning, backing it up, I just think that would... You know, it would just create a great revolution. And if people were standing up in the middle of either really boring e-learning or long lectures that they're, they're, you know, they're getting hypnotised, they're sitting, they're falling asleep. If they just stood up and said, look, this isn't working, I'm off. I think that could be a real change for L&D. Mm. And so it almost sort of circles us back to the beginning piece of really helping educate people what is learning and how powerful can it be. So that people really get excited about the, the benefit that, learning can give them and bring them rather than just almost that short short term high of kind of you know watching the video being engaged and enlightened versus actually when you start to really shift things what it can give you yeah and I think that would also guess the way from that kind of you know event driven training where people think well I've been on a course so somehow I must know it now Mm. And, and as you say be willing to apply it so I'm just really loving this conversation, Emma. I could uh, I could go on for hours, but we, we usually kind of limit our conversation to about 30, 40 minutes. So um, I'd like to ask you finally about where you see the future of learning going. So it's a, it's a big question. <laughs> I do think we will be focusing a lot less on content and more on behavioural change. And I, I don't think that's just a, a personal wish. I think it's actually a requirement of the world, requirement of the the way that we're we're moving now, um, with content being so freely available and um, so easy to access. The advantage will go to the organisations and the people that can really shift behaviours and, you know, as we're saying, not just consume. So I think the future of learning has to be thinking about outcomes, behavior change, how we support people in that space. Now, you know, that is the way that I've kind of been looking at the world and driving towards that, but I really do see that shift starting to happen. I think uh, as as that happens, hopefully that will empower more people. It'll make people more uh, capable of learning because, you know, we, we're very aware that 
you know, new skills are going to be required all the time. The pace of change is accelerating, you know, just unbelievably quickly. And I think, you know, COVID has shown us some really great things about how people can adapt when, when they're kind of forced to. People are actually quite good at it. Um, but I think that whole idea of, of, as you say, of getting it away from content and making it about real behaviour change, habit change, is, is vital. Um, as we layer in technology, that makes it a very exciting proposition. And I think you are leading the forefront there. You're, you're creating some really inspiring and exciting stuff that I advise everybody to go and investigate the work that Emma's doing, as well as read. I think you've written two books, Emma, is that right? I have written two books, yes. Um, both, well, uh, Turning Learning into Action uh, is the title of my first book, which is all about our methodology and um, behavioural change. And the second is Making Change Work, which is about behaviour change in the context of, of change projects. And that was co-written with Jack and Patty Phillips out of the US. So that's a co-written book. So I re really recommend those books. Emma, I have been delighted to have another conversation with you again. I always love learning from you. Um, thank you so much for being on our Stellar Labs podcast. And I really look forward to another conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Stella. Lovely to talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mind the Skills Gap. If you liked it, hit subscribe. You can follow me, Stella Collins, on LinkedIn and find out more about how Stella Labs is tackling the skills gap at stellalabs.eu.